he came over and started pulling on my right shoulder. I said, Goblin, get away. I've got no time for you now. And with a profound will, I pushed at him mentally, and to my amazement, he was gone. Then Patsy imitated my voice and what I'd just said, making fun of me, and gave a low, sneering laugh. Goblin, get away, she repeated. And now you're telling us there's a marble table out there and a gold chair. I fired back at her that those details were of the least importance, and then I positively demanded to see the sheriff and tell him what I had seen. Pop said no, not until he'd gone out there with me, and that if this woman had been rotting for over a hundred years, a day or two wouldn't matter now. But somebody's living there, Pops, I said. Somebody who must know these chains are up there and must have seen the skull. We have a dangerous situation here. Patsy snickered. It's a damn good thing that you believe yourself, Quinn, because nobody else does. You've been crazy since you were born. Aunt Queen did not look at her. It struck me for the first time in my life that Aunt Queen didn't like Patsy any more than Pops did. So what was your dream, Patsy? I asked, trying not to bristle at her insults. Jasmine told me you came home today because you had a dream. Oh, it can't compare to your story, she said ironically and coldly, her blue eyes hard as glass. I just woke up all scared for you. There was somebody who was going to hurt you, and Blackwood Manor was burning, and this group of people, they had you, and they were going to hurt you, and Virginia Lee was in the dream, and she told me, Patsy, get him away. She was real clear. She was sitting with her embroidery, and you know all the embroidery we still have that she did, and there she was in the dream, embroidering, and she put it aside and told me what I just said. It's all fading now. But Blackwood Manor was on fire. I woke up scared. I looked at Pops and Jasmine. They hadn't told her anything about Rebecca or the oil lamp scare I knew by their faces. I looked up at Goblin, who was standing in the corner to my far left, and Goblin was looking at Patsy, and he seemed thoughtful, if not a little scared himself. At this point, Aunt Queen called for the end of the kitchen committee confab. We did have guests coming in. Supper had to be prepared. Lolly and Big Ramona were waiting for us to clear out, and Aunt Queen wanted to talk to me later in her room. We'd eat supper in there, just the two of us. Nobody was calling the sheriff until Pops had gone to the island with me, and Pops said he wasn't feeling very good. He had to go lie down. The heat was bad, and he'd been working on the flower patches in the full sun. He didn't feel good at all. I insisted on placing the earrings and brooch in a plastic bag so that any residue of tissue clinging to them could be analyzed, and then I went up to my room to shower, realizing I was starving to death. It was maybe six o'clock when I sat down to supper with Aunt Queen. Her room had just been redone in golden yellow taffeta, and we were at the small round table against the back windows of the house at which she frequently took her meals. We devoured one of her favorite dishes, scrambled eggs with caviar and sour cream, along with her favorite champagne. She was wearing silver spike heels and a loose-fitting silk and lace dress. She had a cameo at her throat, scented perfectly on her collar. Jasmine must have helped her and we had the earrings and the cameo brooch from the island with us. The brooch was Rebecca at the well. The earrings were tiny heads, as is usually the case with small cameos. I began by telling her all about Rebecca's trunk in the attic, and then Rebecca's ghost and what had happened, and then I went over again everything that was on the island and how perfectly strange it was out there, and that there was clear evidence of murder on the second floor of the house. All right, she said. You've heard many a story of Manfred, and you know now that after Virginia Lee died and left him a widower, he was considered a madman in these parts.
I nodded for her to go on. I also took note that Goblin was right behind her, some distance from her, just watching me with a kind of abstracted expression on his face. He was also leaning against the wall kind of casually, and something about that struck a bad note with me, that he would present such an image of comfort, but my mind was really not on Goblin, but on Rebecca and Aunt Queen. Aunt Queen went on with her tale. But what you don't know, she said, is that Manfred brought women here to Blackwood Manor, always claiming they were governesses for William and Camille, when in fact they were nothing more than playthings for him. Starry-eyed Irish girls he got from Storyville, the red-light district in New Orleans, whom he kept for as long as it suited his purposes, and then from the picture they were abruptly erased. God, you're telling me he killed more than one of them? I asked. Well, I don't know that it did any such thing, said Aunt Queen. She went on. It's your story about this island that has put it in my mind that perhaps he did murder them. But no one knew what became of them, and it was an easy thing to get rid of a poor Irish girl in those days. You simply dropped her down in the middle of New Orleans. What more need be done? But Rebecca, did you hear tell of Rebecca? Yes, indeed I did, said Aunt Queen. You know I did. I heard plenty tell of her, and I'm telling you now. Now let me go on in my fashion. Some of these Irish girls were kind to little William and Camille, but in the main they didn't bother with them one way or another, and so they don't come down to us with any names or faces or even mysterious trunks in the attic, though that would have been a significant clue. No, there were no other suspicious trunks in the attic, I interjected, but there are clothes, heaps of old clothes, clothes museums would pay for, I think, but only Rebecca's trunk. Slow down and let me talk, Aunt Queen said with a little graceful exasperation. Queen, you're overexcited, and it's a marvelous thing to see, she said, smiling. But let me talk. And talk she did. Now, while all of that was going on, she said, Manfred was up to his famous tricks of riding his black gelding over the land and disappearing into the swamp for weeks at a time. Then came Rebecca. Now, Rebecca was not only more beautiful than the other women. She was also very refined and passed herself off for a lady with a gracious manner, which won everyone over to her side. But one night when Manfred was off in the swamps, she got to cursing Manfred for his absence, and in the kitchen she got drunk on brandy with Aura Lee, that was Jasmine's great-great-grandmother, and she told Aurelie her story of how she, Rebecca, had been born in the Irish Channel in New Orleans and was as common as dirt, as she put it, in a world as narrow as the gutter, she declared. One of thirteen children, and how she had gotten raped in a garden district mansion where she'd been working as a maid. And the whole Irish neighborhood knew about it, and when her family wanted her to go into the convent on account of it, she went downtown to Storyville instead and they took her into a house of prostitution, as she had hoped. Now, Rebecca was pregnant from the rape, but whether she lost the child or got rid of it, this part was unclear. To Aura Lee, she said flat out that being in an elegant and fine house in Storyville, with the piano always playing and the gentleman being so gracious, was far superior to being at home in a miserable shotgun house at St. Thomas in Washington, 
by the river where her Irish father and her German grandmother used to beat her and her brothers and sisters with a strap. But Rebecca did not want to end her upward climb in Storyville, so she started to put on the airs of a lady and use what she knew of manners to make herself more refined. She also loved to do embroidery and crocheting, which had been beaten into her at home, and used her sewing abilities to make herself fine clothes. Wait a minute, I interrupted her. Didn't Patsy say something about the embroidery in her dream that Virginia Lee was embroidering? That's important. And you should see the embroidered things upstairs in that trunk. Yes, she knew embroidery, Rebecca. They're confused in Patsy's dream, but you know about the oil lamps and what I almost did. I do know, of course I know, said Aunt Queen. Why do you think I came home? But you need knowledge to arm you against this cozy, love-making ghost. So listen to what the story was. The other prostitutes in the house in Storyville laughed at Rebecca, and they called her the Countess. But she knew that sooner or later a man would come who would see her attributes and take her out of that place. She sat right in the room where the women congregated for the man to make his choice, and she embroidered as if she was a great lady and gave each gentleman her lovely smile. Well, Manfred Blackwood was the man of her dreams, and the tale came down in Jasmine's family that he had actually and truly loved Rebecca, much in the same way that he had loved Virginia Lee. Indeed, it was Rebecca, petite Rebecca, with her brilliant smile and charm and ways that finally took his mind off the grief. He was obsessed with giving her jewelry, and she loved it, and she was gracious and sweet to him, and even sang old songs to him which she had learned growing up. Of course, in her first weeks here, she was all honey and spice to little William and Camille, but they didn't fall for it, or so the story says, just waiting for her to disappear like all the rest. Then Manfred and Rebecca went to Europe for a year the two of them, and it was rumored they spent a very long time in Naples, because Rebecca loved it so, and they even had a villa for a while on the famous Amalfi Coast. If you saw that coast, and you will someday, Quinn, you'll understand that it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Imagine it, this poor girl from the Irish Channel in the dreamland of southern Italy, and think what it meant. It was there that Rebecca cultivated a love of cameos, apparently, as she had quite a collection when she returned, and it was then that she showed them off to Aurelie and Jerome and their niece, Pepper, explaining all about Rebecca at the well, the theme that was named for her, she exclaimed. Poor creature. And ever after that she wore a cameo at her neck and earrings such as those you found out there. Now, speaking of out there... Right after their return from Naples, Manfred took to spending more time in the swamps than ever before. And within months, there came all the workmen from New Orleans and the deliveries of lumber and metal and all manner of things to make the notorious hermitage on Sugar Devil Island, this place you've now seen with your own eyes. But as you know, Manfred paid off the hirelings when the secret place was completed, and he took to spending weeks out there, leaving Rebecca at home to fret and cry and pace the floor while my poor father William, 
watched the woman change from pretty girl to banshee, as he put it to me later on. Meanwhile, it had become the scandal of the parish that Manfred kept Rebecca in his own bedroom, and that was your room, Quinn, the room with the front parlor to it. It became your room as soon as you were born. Pops, as you know, wants the back room upstairs so he can see out the back windows and keep an eye on the shed and the garages and the man and the cars and all that, so you inherited that front room. But I digress, and it will probably happen more than once. Now let me see. We left Rebecca with a cameo at her neck, in her fancy clothes, pacing the floor up there, crying and murmuring for Manfred, who was gone for as long sometimes as two weeks. And happy with his new retreat, he often took expensive provisions with him, while at other times he said he would hunt for what he ate. Now, it couldn't have been a worse time for her to do it, but Rebecca wanted Manfred to marry her. Make her an honest woman, as they used to say in those days, you know, and she told everyone that he would. She even got the priest up here to accost him on one of his rare visits home and talk to him about it, how he ought to do it, and how Rebecca was a proper wife for Manfred no matter what her past. But you know, Quinn, in those days, what man was going to marry a prostitute from Storyville with whom he'd been living for over two years? Bringing the priest proved a terrible mistake, as Manfred was ashamed and annoyed. And the rumor spread that Manfred beat Rebecca for doing it, and Aura Lee had to interfere to make him stop. Somehow or other they made it up, and Manfred went back out into the swamp. Thereafter, when he came back from these forays into the depths of the bog, he often had gifts not only for Rebecca, to whom he gave lovely cameos, but gifts of pearls and diamonds for Camille, and even fine stickpins and cufflinks with diamonds for William to wear. So he was meeting someone out there in the swamp, I said. He had to be. How else could he come back with gifts? Precisely. He was meeting someone. And his absences from the house grew longer and longer, and his conduct at home reclusive and peculiar, and when he was gone, William, my father, and Camille suffered downright meanness and heavy abuse from Rebecca, who grew to hate them for what they were, part of a family to which she did not legally belong. Imagine it, the poor children, now adolescents, at the pure mercy of this young stepmother, all left alone in this house with only the colored servants, the devoted and loving Jerome and R. Lee and their niece, Pepper, trying to interfere. Rebecca would...